Hi, my name's Luke Bache, and welcome to Movers, Shakers, and Social Changes. In this podcast, I speak to people who have had a profound impact on many people's lives, including my own. These are people who I consider pioneers in their respective fields and who I truly believe are stepping into this new story of interconnectivity, compassion, and presence. Today, I'm thrilled to say that I'm talking to Dr. Richard Schwartz, the founder of Internal Family Systems Therapy, which is not only one of the fastest growing approaches to psychotherapy, it's also a model for life. I discovered this model about five years ago and I'd been meditating already for about 15 years and it, it changed everything for me. I consider it to be empowering, effective, and in its non-pathologizing way, I really feel that this inner compassion can emerge. In the first 10 minutes of this interview, we break down what the model is, and then we go into more detail. Unfortunately, we had some issues with sound, but I'm really hoping that you'll stick with it as I think there's some beautiful content here. Thank you. I would love to kind of ask you what the internal family systems model of therapy is. Yeah, it's a, it is a psychotherapy, but it's become also a kind of life practice or a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. And um, the first assumption is that uh, everybody has what I call parts, which uh, are sort of little inner beings almost. They're, they're what other systems call subpersonalities. And that it's the natural state of the mind to be that way. It's not the product of trauma or anything like that. That we're born with these, these different inner, what I call parts, that are full-range personalities. And, and in their naturally calm state are incredibly valuable. Every one of them carries wonderful qualities to help us in our lives. But they're forced out of their naturally valuable states by traumas and what in psychology are called attachment injuries from your parents. And they're forced into states they often hate, but feel are necessary to protect us. So extreme states that can, can be damaging. Mm -hmm. And often were necessary at one time when you were a child, but uh, now they're sort of frozen in that time and think that they still have to do this for you, even though they don't. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of what are thought of as psychological symptoms and, and a lot of what gets in your way in life are just these parts that are trying their best to keep you safe, but don't know any better than to keep doing their jobs. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to parts, uh, through my, I have a family therapy background, so I was trying to get my clients to form better relationships with their parts in the way I would with a, a family. And as I did that, uh, they would constantly find themselves upset with whatever part they were talking to. 
And so I started to think maybe it's like a family where when you try to get two people to talk to each other, some third party jumps in or, or cues the other, they disagree. And so that the interference from the other person makes the, the dyad you're working with a lot tougher. So in family therapy, we got the third party to just step back in the room and respect the boundary. And uh, as I did that in this inner world, so if I had a client like you, Luke, talking to maybe your critic, mm-hmm. and suddenly you were furious with the critic, I would say, could you find the part that hates the critic? And could you get it to step back in there? And if, if you did, and most of the time, often you can very quickly, then I'd say, now how do you feel toward the critic? And it'd be an entirely different answer uh, in the direction of, I'm curious about it, or I want to help it, or I just, just want to get to know it. Seconds earlier, you hated it or you were terrified of it. We get that to step out. And this other person comes forward and knows how to talk to the parts in a way that is helpful to them. And when I started doing that with other clients and finding it's like the same person pops out with the same qualities and knows how to heal and can't be damaged. And I was amazed because in psychology, we're taught that uh, to have any of those qualities, you had to have had certain kind of good parenting at a critical period in your childhood. And I was working with clients that had been tortured on a daily basis. So there was no way they could have gotten it from a person, from a relationship. And I came to call that the self because when I would ask clients, what part of you is that? They'd say, that's me, that's not a part. That's myself. So that's the self of the capital S. And it turns out that that's in everybody. It can't be damaged. It gets covered over by these parts and they blend with it so it's obscured. But as they open space, it's like the same self comes out of everybody and knows how to heal internally, but also knows how to heal relationships. So those are the two big assumptions, the, that everybody is uh, multiple in the sense that they have these parts mm-hmm. and, uh, and that they're not they're all valuable, but are forced into extreme roles. And then the second being that just beneath the surface of those parts is this, what I call self, who can be the leader of the system. And a lot of the, one of the goals is to restore self-leadership, both internally and externally. Uh, And so the parts can trust, they don't have to run things because they're a bunch of kids most of the time. They're like what in family therapy we used to call parentified children. They're kids who had to take on parental responsibilities because they thought they had to. So so anyway, those are the main assumptions. And then as I was mucking around in the early days, I could tell I was making mistakes. And so I got really curious about what I was doing wrong. And I learned a map to the territory that's become very valuable because in addition to the parts that take on protective roles, we all have parts that when they get hurt or shamed or terrified, uh, take on those what we call burdens of those feelings. And um, when they, and, and they'll shift, like before they got hurt, they were these delightful inner children that we loved to be around and give us qualities like curiosity and and creativity and awe and 
desire to be connected to people and so on. But after they get hurt, we all they seem they seem to us to just be bundles of pain, and so we don't want to be around them anymore. And so we wind up, in my language, exiling the parts of us that were hurt the most by these experiences, which tend, in general, to be our most sensitive parts. So we wind up locking away our juice, basically, mis mistaking it for just memories, sensations, emotions, and beliefs that came from traumas. And so we all have a bunch of these exiles, as I call them. And when you have a lot of exiles, then the world becomes a lot more dangerous and you become more delicate. And you need a lot of protectors to manage the world so it doesn't trigger your exiles or so you, your exiles stay locked up. And so we have a bunch of what we call manager parts whose job it is to not let anybody too close to you and to, to try and run your life so that you get a lot of praise and nobody rejects you or make you look good, your appearance all the time. And they often become the inner critics because they're, like I said, in over their heads and they're just trying to get you to behave and they think yelling at you is the way to do that because your parents did that. And, uh, and they're trying their best. And there's a bunch of other common manager roles, but um, everybody's familiar with that inner critic. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> and then because the world still has a way of triggering your exiles, we have to have other parts who immediately go into action to take you away from that, what feels like flames of emotion, raw emotion that's going to totally consume you. So these parts tend to be impulsive, reactive. They don't care about the consequences of what they do to your body, to your relationship. They just got to get you away from those exiled feelings right away. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so we call them firefighters. They're fighting the flames of emotion coming from the exiles. And uh, we all have, you know, a hierarchy of those. If the first one doesn't work, you go to the next one, and if that doesn't work, you go on, on up the line. So that's the map. It's really simple. It's just these very vulnerable, young, childlike exiles who got hurt and then got rejected by us because we didn't want to be around them anymore. Mm -hmm. And then these protectors, one group of whom we call managers, the other we call firefighters. So before you discovered this model, were you particularly surprised? Did you ever thought about any concept of the self as it's uh, spoken about in different esoteric wisdom traditions? Or was, did you learn the self from the more wisdom tradition or did you learn it from the therapy and then needed some kind of um well not confirmation but more clarity i guess around it so then you went more into the spirit yeah it's much more the latter so because I, I come from a scientific kind of atheist family and held those beliefs coming into this and so it wasn't until and and i had uh I'd done TM, you know, Transcendental Meditation, as a kind of way to help me with my anxiety. And, but when I would meditate like that, I could touch into what I now call self. Mm -hmm. I had an experiential uh, taste of it, but I didn't really have a con concept conception of it at all. I just thought, when you meditate, you, you go to this nice place. It's great. So 
when I started to um, hear from clients and, and the self popped out and couldn't be damaged and, and seemed to be in everybody in the same way, uh, I was really uh, shocked. And because as I say, I was trained to, to believe the only way you could have any of that was through a relationship. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until some students actually started to say, you know, this sort of sounds like Buddha nature, or this sounds like Atman. Or this. Then I started to explore all that and was quite amazed to see how virtually every spiritual tradition, especially the esoteric sides of the tradition, the contemplative sides, has a word for this, what I discovered as self, and describe it basically the same way. Uh, I had stumbled onto a way to access it very quickly. You don't have to meditate 20 years. Mm-hmm. But it's really that. And it was, like I say, it was all a process of discovery for me. Because I'm, a, you know, to my credit, I'm a good phenomenologist. I, I really go with the phenomena. And, and if it leads me way outside my paradigm, I'm still going to go with it. So that's what happened. I really find it useful, uh, your explanation about that often when we speak about self, I guess, in a spiritual way, it can be more the oceanic absorption quality. And I really appreciate the IFS way of not only that, but the wave quality that this self quality isn't kind of just a passive um, absorption into everything. It it can be very self-led and that can be an active part of one's life. Yeah. So I, I feel like that's maybe my biggest contribution is to see that self isn't this passive witness state that is pre- predominantly the way a lot of spiritual traditions describe it and Jung described it that way and so on, but that it can and actually wants to be an active leader, both inside and outside. And so for me, you know, like mindfulness in the U.S. is all the rage. And, um, and the goal, you know, you separate from your thoughts and emotions. And in my mind, you access yourself just by doing that. But because you think of them as ephemeral thoughts and emotions, you don't try to interact with them because they're just passing by. And you just observe them as you do in these other traditions. But from my point of view, if you know they're not just thoughts and emotions, they're suffering beings, that it's not compassionate to just watch them parade by. And in fact, you're going to want to go and get to know them and interact and hold them and love them. And that's what started happening uh, when I would access the self and clients. They would spontaneously start to relate in a healing way to their clients, to their parts. And... So I'm, I was just following their lead, mm-hmm. but uh, it does turn out that, uh, yeah, that self isn't just this passive witness. Yeah, 
on the, on that note, when I was first kind of informally taught this model, I had been meditating for many, many years and it, it changed everything for me. I think there was uh, a subtle flavor of an agenda with my meditation that I was meditating in order to be free of these qualities I didn't like about myself. You're um, not alone in that. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was life-changing, like you said, to realize, okay, well, what happens if I turn the lens and start to communicate with that part? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out the monkey mind that's so, you know, so uh, vilified in Definitely. lots of spiritual traditions has a lot to say, and it actually is a great set of little manager parts that are just trying their best. <laughs> and can I ask, well, about the parts, um, I guess on the one hand, there is the normality of parts that we're all familiar with saying, oh, a part of me wants to stay in bed and another part wants to go out today. And yet, there, it's not so spoken about, as you mentioned, Jung spoke about it. Of course, there's psychosynthesis. Um, and now there's more research with neuroscience backing up what you've been saying as well. So yeah, just a little bit, uh, if you could expand more on that, if people kind of get scared thinking, is this normal? Is it normal to have all these different parts inside of me? Yeah, uh, you know, at first, when my clients started talking about their parts, I got scared because I thought maybe these people are sicker than I thought because they would talk about them as having a lot of autonomy mm -hmm. and having a lot of fights inside with each other and then struggles to take over and make the person do things they didn't want to do. So, I, you know, and because multiplicity has been pathologized in the culture, that's why I thought it was, they must be sicker than I thought. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I started listening inside myself, and oh my God, I've got them too. Mm -hmm. And some of mine are, are as polarized and as extreme about food as my clients were. And so then I started to calm down and really started to look around. And, and it turns out that, you know, you cited Young and uh, Sajoli, and there's a lot of people that have run into this in various forms both in the history of psychotherapy, but also in science. In fact, I'm staying at my co-author's house right now, Bob Falconer, and I wrote a book called Many Minds, One Self, where we, I don't know if you've seen it, but we run through the whole history of our culture and psychotherapy and science, and how many times this idea that multiplicity is normal mm -hmm. came up and then got pushed back down by the dominant paradigm that the mind is unitary and that having many minds is is the product of trauma and that's been the paradigm that has come into our culture from the multiple multiple personality disorder field that having these what they call alters is the product of trauma and therefore is a sign that you're sick and that's what i've been trying to reverse and it's a tough sell in our culture because yeah. we're so indoctrinated to this, what I call monomind way of thinking. Where do you think that came from? You know, it's tough to totally get uh, 
the history of that and why it's such a hard concept to think of people having many minds when there's so much evidence. Um, you know, currently it is from that uh, multiple personality field, mm -hmm. but uh, in terms of the history of where it came from, I'm just not really sure. Mm -hmm. you know, we never really totally could answer that. Uh, we could answer how the multiplicity idea, normal multiplicity got suppressed, but I never could get to why that was so threatening. And as a, well, as the founder of this model, when you were first discovering the parts and the self, can I ask how you were working with your own parts and your own self in that time as well, if, if, if you didn't have anyone else to kind of help you if you've just discovered it? Yeah. So I would try to work with my own and uh, with my protectors, I could do pretty well because mm -hmm. I had a brutal critic inside, uh, you know, use the voice of my father and mm -hmm. um, at times I was a big disappointment to him. So, so I, I could begin to, rather than hate that critic inside, begin to ask questions of it. And it would, you know, like all these critics do, would say, it's afraid if it didn't do this to me, I wouldn't try hard or I'd disappoint him or something like that. Or if it does it to me, then when he does it to me, it won't feel as bad because I was be prepared. Those are a lot of the common answers you get from these critics. And so then I could appreciate it and, you know, negotiate. I'll work hard even if you don't yell at me. Actually, I'll, I'll be better able to work hard because when you yell at me, it triggers this this freeze response and, and so I could negotiate all that. But I couldn't really go to my exiles by myself. And so it wasn't until there were some other uh, originally students um, who started to learn how to do this well enough and I could trade sessions with them that I actually was able to go to some of those exiles. And uh, yeah, that you know, that's a powerful experience to do that with former students, yeah. Do you have any daily habits that you do now to help you rest more in self-energy? Yeah, so there is a kind of an IFS meditation I developed where every day I'll wake up and I'll check in with the parts that I've been working with. And uh, the goal is, is really just to maintain the work mm -hmm. and to make sure they're still okay and if they need anything, like you might go check on your kids in the morning. And, uh, and if they're all okay, then I'll ask them to open space inside mm -hmm. so I can be more in my body. So that's how we meditate. Instead of trying to shoo away these thoughts that are seen as the monkey mind or whatever they're th called in these different traditions. Mm -hmm. We go to the parts that are giving us the thoughts and the distractions, and we just ask them in a respectful, gentle way, could you give me a little space here? Could you just step out a little more and relax? And then you can jump back as soon as I'm done. And it turns out they respond well to that. <laughs> and they don't, if they trust you're really gonna let them come back, they don't have to bug you for 20 minutes and they <laughs> don't have to shoo them away constantly. Um, so 
then I'll do that, you know, and I'll, I'll feel all these great qualities, which I don't think I identified earlier. Um, so as I was exploring what self was, I came to catalog the qualities that would show up spontaneously in people. And so we have what we call the eight C's of self-leadership because the, all the, the qualities began with the letter C, oddly enough. So uh, curiosity, calm, confidence, compassion, and then clarity, creativity, courage, and connectedness. And so I will spontaneously begin to feel those qualities more in my body and my heart's opening and uh, I've got a lot of spacious energy inside. There's a kind of vibrating energy that comes with this we call self energy. Mm-hmm. And I'll just stay in that state for a period of time. And then I'll invite my parts to come back and now they come back and they see I'm really there. And they're a lot calmer too, because when I'm, in my body, it's a lot easier for them to trust there's a leader here, yeah. but I'm not, so. And if, and if the part happened to say no uh, during the meditation, then if there is enough self-energy, then you could then also have the investigative quality to see what it's worried about if it did step back, right? Exactly, that's exactly what we do. Yeah. yeah. And we might have to just work with it and not do the meditation thing. So You've described the qualities of self that are innate in every human being. Um, And because we're human beings, we pick up inevitable trauma um, on on a varying scale, of course. And when one is a, a child, is, is it the nature of the mind that, it's harder for the psyche to handle a lot of it, uh, I guess, with attachment and other things. So that's when a lot of exiles seem to seem to be built into the psyche, right? That's right. Yeah. It's, it's both because, uh, you know, our, our mind, our brain hasn't developed to the point where we can make sense of a lot of things that happen when we're young. And also, we don't have the body to protect ourselves. So we're, we're pretty uh, defenseless and vulnerable that way too and so um, so when trauma happens at that age uh, it's just much more impactful mm-hmm. and for me trauma isn't traumatizing per se it's the impact on the inner system that's traumatizing so if for example and this is what we're trying to bring to education if you, you get bullied in school and as a result, you lock away the parts that got hurt because you don't want to look like a baby and you lose trust in yourself to protect you and these other really macho tough parts start to take over, then that's traumatizing. It's really made your system much more imbalanced and 
you're going to be dominated by some parts and you're going to keep blocking away others. And, and there isn't any trust for self anymore. If instead, the same event, you got bullied, you knew to go to the parts that got hurt and embrace them and love them and help them unburden what we call unburden, release the emotions they got from it in the moment, then they come to trust you more. And then you can tell the protective parts, look, I've got this. I'm, I don't need your help right now. You can advise me, but you don't have to take over. And then it's not traumatizing. It, it, there's no lasting effect to the trauma. So does that make sense? Yeah, it really does. It really does. I wish, well, I, I'm aware that you have children. Um, I have very small children. The one is three, but when I get overwhelmed, <laughs> I'm trying to verbalize, okay, a part of me feels. And right. that in itself has changed every single relationship in my life. So I'm curious to know if you brought that in to your uh, relationships with your children and just the concept of knowing about self, like you said, with the bullying, if, if I knew that as a child, wow. Yeah. So I tried, I mean, I, I certainly did it for myself mm -hmm. to greater or lesser degrees that I would catch my parts that would want to shame my, my daughters or, uh, yell at them or uh, yeah, or would give in too much because uh, I, I was the soft touch in the family so I had to work on that a lot but uh, and I would try <laughs> in the early days to kind of experiment on them and try to get them to work with their parts but there's just this constant refrain in my get out of here with that part shit daddy and I was living there good <laughs> So that didn't go that far, but um, but they all, you know, ultimately came to value it. And yeah. I think varying degrees, they still do some of it mm -hmm. themselves. But yeah, just uh, there's a whole kind of growing field now of, called self-led parenting, where um, you check from the place from which you're speaking to your kids and you notice when parts are there and when you're in self and not and not uh, blended with parts. And so it's very useful just for that much, even if the kids don't tend to use it. And it can be very subtle, right? Um, I, I used to claim I was self-taught with nonviolent communication. Um, so I would have this perfect structure that I would say to my partner, well, when you did this, I felt this, but it was coming from a part that wanted to prove she was wrong. And lo and behold, her parts picked up on that. She reacted and I was like, how could you react? I just gave you a perfect structure of nonviolent communication. That's um, totally right. I mean, I, yeah. uh, there are a lot of communication packages, NBC being one, that are useful if you can do them from self. Yeah. But if you're doing it from some part with an agenda, it's going to have the same negative impact. And so I've done some, uh, for example, training of social activists who are in the NBC community. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's a very nice fit, NBC and IFS. But yeah. Yeah. It's really important that people know how to do this inner work so that they're speaking from the right place. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I, I'm coming back to the 
what I spoke about with children and exiles and what we talked about the psyche, if one has had a very traumatic childhood or life and anytime the person has shown self energy that their parent or whoever it was kind of cut it down in however a way, how other parts well, I think the parts could then learn that self is dangerous, right? That's right. So how, how would one go about, go about that? Yeah, well, there are, there are parents or caretakers who do react in a very negative way to the presence of self. Mm -hmm. um, extreme examples would be perpetrators who are abusing their victims. And they know that if their victim had any of those seaward qualities, like courage, for example, or confidence, or that that jeopardizes their ability to abuse the person. Because the, they would run away or they would tell somebody or something would happen. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like they all go to the same school where they learn that whenever your victim shows any of those qualities, you should torture more. And so the victims come to associate self with more torture mm -hmm. and their parts are terrified to let self return. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with a number of those clients. Many of them had this uh, multiple personality, it's now called DID diagnosis. Because uh, you know, a lot of ritual abuse perpetrators do this and a lot of them are victims of that. And uh, so I would, you know, negotiate, negotiate to get these manager parts to open space and let self come in and finally what happened and they'd be terrified. They'd just be shaking, waiting for me to, to torture them. So, and, and then, you know, it took a while for them to trust it was safe. So, yeah, and some, and that's partly why, I mean, that's an extreme version, but there are far less extreme versions of where people associate these this sense of confidence or other C words with being attacked. And so that's partly why, while there are a number of, of systems for accessing the self quickly, and psychedelics is one, um, but there are several others, some spiritual, I tend to go in what I call a constraint releasing fashion. So rather than trying to bring in resources or, or access self through some technique quickly, I'll do it by having parts open space, just ask them. So it's with their permission that they're allowing self to come in. Mm -hmm. And most of the time they'll do it quickly. And when they don't, it's cause there's a part that's terrified what will happen. Mm -hmm. And then we can work with that part rather than trying to override it. So it's a long answer to what I think you were asking, but I hope yeah. I got it. Yeah. And I've experienced this from my, uh, I guess, spiritual path that many techniques can seem to go straight to an exile. Um, but as you said, because it hasn't had the approval of a protector that once the retreat was finished, then there was a huge backlash and I could never understand why that I was then just doing what I was doing, whether it was just being online for a week after the retreat. 
there are ways to reassure them and to get permission. And when you do that, you don't have those backlash experiences. Mm. So these are delicate inner ecologies that we're entering. And uh, a lot of people, I learned the hard way, the importance of being ecologically sensitive. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that's uh, very much needed, actually. So, so coming back to the system as a whole, we've kind of spoken a little bit about self and exiles. And when an exile develops, let's say, I guess common ones seem to be kind of an unlovability or shame, mm-hmm. grief, a worthlessness. Mm-hmm that if a person has a part of them that seems to take that belief on, that parts develop, some are more proactive, which are called managers in this model, and some are more reactive, which are called firefighters in this model. Mm-hmm. And common managers, as you said, could be inner critics, strivers, planners, um, pessimists. So if someone was shamed, it makes complete sense, let's say, for an inner critic to develop, as you mentioned, that is always looking out for more criticism, which would bring up more shame. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. So critics tend to, to do the jobs I mentioned earlier, or some of them, they believe if they run you down enough, you won't take any risks and mm-hmm. that'll keep you safe. They'll try to just keep you small all the time uh, beneath the radar so you don't get attacked. And all of that was necessary at one time. Yeah. But because they're frozen in that time, they don't know. Like if you were to ask those parts, I would say, Luke, ask that critic how old it thinks you are. Most of the time you'll get a single digit. And when it when you tell it, no, I'm not seven years old anymore. I'm I don't know how you, you look like you're in your thirties. Yeah. Um, they're shocked a lot of the time. They can't believe it. And just that, just the updating of these parts is a big relief to them often. Mm-hmm. Because one of the, you know, I've talked about how one of the goals is to release these parts from their extreme roles so they can be who they're designed to be, which is always valuable. But another goal uh, is to restore their trust in self as the leader. And that often comes when they see that self isn't a little kid anymore. They don't have to protect it like they did. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's common, isn't it, that the manager's fear is that if they weren't doing what they do, the system would be overwhelmed by shame. So with that belief they feel that they can never rest really that's right yeah and part of why they can't rest is because when they did in the past the system was overwhelmed by shame Mm -hmm. or by pain or by terror or whatever they're trying to lock up because these exiles are desperate to break out and to be seen and and uh, taken care of so any chance they get they're gonna go for it and then the protectors say, oh, see, we've got to keep them locked up. Because yeah. when, they, when they're not locked up, they totally take over. And when they take over, I can't get out of bed for a week or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a vicious cycle that way. Yeah. 
So it's a tough sell a lot of the time to the protectors to let us go to the exiles. And uh, we have to, I often have to promise, I guarantee they're not going to overwhelm. And instead, we're just going to help them get out of where they're stuck in the past and release these emotions and beliefs they've been carrying all these years. So they're just happy little kids. And I promise we can do that. And then when we do that, you can find a totally different job that you'd much prefer. You don't have to do this this crazy critic thing or whatever you're doing anymore. Yeah, and that in itself can be so self-inducing, if that's the right term. Um, I think when someone realizes this critic for one doesn't enjoy what it does, it just mm -hmm. feels trapped. And it's, yeah, it's stuck. That's not its intention. Its intention is to protect. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and when you get that about all your parts, because most of us have parts we're totally ashamed of or really have, uh, I mean, there are what we call protectors in exile, which are different from the exiles and they're not, they're not vulnerable. But they're, like a lot of people do that with their rage or their sexuality or their, um, you know, the parts that we were taught in our families or our culture to be ashamed of or afraid that, if they take over, they'll hurt somebody. So as you go to even those parts and realize they're just, they're not what you thought at all. Mm -hmm. Not just bundles of rage. They're, they're these teenage kids that got locked up and are pissed about it. And they carry rage from when they couldn't protect you when you were young. Then your heart opens. You have total compassion and appreciation for these parts. And then they can kind of come out and be a part of the inner family. So. Yeah, it's all that, that that starts a whole big virtuous cycle rather than the vicious cycles that we're all caught up in otherwise. And, and, and as you said, the more the manager kind of pushes to keep the exile down, the more the exile wants to be heard and can come up in more extreme ways of complete overwhelm, right? And if that happens, then the vicious cycle of the firefighter coming up comes up and firefighters either well they kind of want to soothe or distract right yeah and, and some firefighters are are quite um you know they hurt other people or they make you an, an addict or they do things that bring criticism from the outside world and that fuel the inner critic who's now you know taking what other people are saying about you also to try and shame you into behaving but then the shame from the critic and from the outside world goes right to the heart of the exile. And now the firefighter has a bigger job because there's more in there. And that's, you know, that's uh, the current state of the art of addiction treatment or eating disorder treatment or so on and so on is really just shame people into behaving. Mm -hmm. And you can see how well it's working. Yeah. And... Um, I'm trying not to say this in a judging way because I, uh, I too find it very easy, but I'm trying to say that I think a lot of that entertainment now is firefighter inviting. Mm -hmm. um, do you I agree. agree with that? Totally, yeah. 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 Our culture provides all kinds of great firefighter activities so we don't have to deal with our exile. And spirituality does too, what's called, uh, what Jonathan, John Wellwood called 
spiritual bypass is really, really common with meditators all the time, I find out. As we start heading toward their exiles, suddenly they're in this kind of blissful state <laughs> that's a part that just came in and, and took them to this nice place that they meditate to stay in. Yeah. So. Yeah, I've been the, the old classic, shut up, I'm meditating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been there for sure. We've spoken about um, the relationships of the exiles and managers and firefighters. And within that system, like I guess any family, some parts can kind of work together. Protectors might be in kind of alliances and there also might be polarizations as well. I'm wondering if you could expand on that too, please. Uh, so, okay, one example would be, I, I worked, I've worked a lot with uh, perpetrators over the years, uh, and like uh, sex offenders, and you'll find a kind of unholy alliance between a part that carries a lot of sexuality. Many of them were sexually abused, but not all, but um, in general, sexuality is one of their big protector firefighters and then a part that hates vulnerability, hates the vulnerability inside of them and blames it for getting them hurt, mm -hmm. and then wants to, took on the perpetrator's energy when they were being hurt to try and protect them from the perpetrator, but now gets stuck with this desire to hurt people, or to, to hurt weakness, wants to, to shame or attack anything that's weak and uses the sexual part to override the system because the sexual energy can take over, can make, can override the conscience or all the managers that are trying not to have this happen. So that the, the perpetrator part by itself usually can't do that. So it teams with the sexual part to, wind up molesting people. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's just one example of how they ally, uh, but there are lots of those. And then what was the other question? About the polarizations as well. Yeah, so when you have some kind of extreme firefighter, you're gonna have a manager who's desperate to control it and not let it take over. And the more it tries to take over, the more extreme the manager has to become to try and counter it. So. So we're all full of these polarizations around different issues. If, if you think of a dilemma you're facing in your life, it's likely you'll hear one part saying, go for it, and another part saying, don't you dare. And as one really pushes more, then the other has to get more extreme. Just like in a family, mm -hmm. it's really no different. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so helping parts depolarize is a big part of this work too. Yeah, because every, any arguments really a polarization right yeah and most of the time if we got into an argument you and i 
it wouldn't, there would be no self around. It would just be our protective parts doing their dance with each other. Mm -hmm. And one protector, when, when one protector and one person's talking, the other person's protector will get more extreme, just, just like in the inner world. And so a lot of, when I'm working with couples or you know, more and more um, mediators are using IFS and uh, people that do corporate kind of consulting. And a lot of what we do is simply when people get into conflict, say, stop the action. I want both of you to focus inside. Notice the parts that are doing the talking and don't come back out until you can speak yeah. for those parts from self with an open heart rather than letting them take over and speaking from them. And that by itself creates a, a big change. Yeah. Especially as people are able to talk, speak for their exiles, the vulnerability that is driving their protectors. And they, they really uh, feel seen and they, it softens their, their opponent. Yeah, and I think that's what you alluded to earlier, where an NVC, nonviolent communication, IFS can be such a such a nice blend. Exactly. One of the biggest gifts, I mean, there's so many I've received from this model, is that in in relation that sometimes it isn't possible to have self so much self in my system to just be able to say, you know what, I really don't have hardly any self-energy present right now. I think we need a timeout. And that has been one of the biggest gifts that, that we've had in our relationship too. As you say, if we continue now, it's just going to be a parts war. So I guess I have two, two more questions for you to do with neuroscience. Um, I think I'm aware that IFS has started to go a little bit more into that. I'm wondering if there's ever been a session with any kind of brain sensory equipment on to see which parts of the brain light up on people during a session? Yeah, um, not too long ago, one of my uh, uh, lead trainers and a guy who's, who does a lot of teaching on IFS and neuroscience named Frank Anderson, mm -hmm. neuropsychiatrist, um, went to a, a physiology, neurophysiology lab in University of Pittsburgh, and they brought in two trauma clients, PTSD clients, and he did two sessions with them, as was to be the beginning of a, a longer project. And uh, we're still waiting for the data to come back on those sessions, and the project got got postponed. But that is a goal, um, and I, you know, I'm very curious now that they're doing brain scans. For example, when people are on these psychedelics yeah. and they're finding that it shuts down the, um, what's it called, the default network and mm -hmm. okay. lights up other places, I think when you're in self, it's likely it'll be something similar to that. Mm -hmm. And I'm, But I'm really curious about what happens during the unburdening process yeah. of the brain. So it's all yet to happen. Okay, exciting. And then finally, we, we've spoken a lot of client-therapist um, relationship, but something that has also really affected me profoundly is that when I'm in the therapist's seat, 
that before when I'd studied other methodologies, I was quite tired after sessions because I guess I was in a caretaking part, wanting to save the person in some way. Mm -hmm. And in this model, I don't feel tired after sessions because I think just having that awareness, okay, of what were what parts present, asking it to step back. And I think, I don't know what it is, whether it's some body tone or voice tone or an energetic level. I think that helps other people's systems relax as well when you're not in a role trying to fix them. I wonder if you could expand on that, if you've experienced that as well. Very much. So your effectiveness as a therapist, regardless of what model you use, uh, is very much related to how much what I'm calling self, you can embody with your client. And so we, you know, our trainings are all about helping therapists find the parts that are doing the therapy and get them to step back and not have an agenda and have your heart open the whole time and have this kind of vibrating energy running in your body. And when clients sense that, and they sense that that's the person you are with them, there's something very soothing to protectors and they protectors often very quickly drop their guards and you're able to go places that if you're not in that state will take you many, many sessions to get to. So, um, yeah, so it's, and, you know, beyond being a therapist, it becomes a practice to try and check through the day. How much self am I embodied and how much are my parts running my day? Yeah. And then if you had a microphone in my head, you'd hear some version of just relax. I'm, I'm here. I can handle this. I'll take care of it. You don't have to. And I'll feel a receding of the energy of the part. And I'll just feel uh, the spacious kind of non-agended self back in my body. Mm -hmm. I think that's really useful to have with the meditation practice as you said right to have a, a seat or a space each day where you create uh, an environment whether it's walking in a forest or whatever it is to bring more self-energy and communicate and to also check out the day what parts present what does it need right now very much i would like to say thank you actually um Thank you so much for your time. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. I have as well, Luke. You're a really good interviewer, and it's, uh, it's clear to me that you know the model well, and so I appreciate your interest in it. I'd like to finish the pod with a quote from the Velveteen Rabbit that Dr. Schwartz refers to in his book, introduction to the internal family systems model which i can highly recommend if you're interested in learning more the quote refers to about the long-term perspective of embodying more self energy what is real asked the rabbit one day does it happen all at once or bit by bit it doesn't happen all at once said the skin horse you become it takes a long time that's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out 
and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. For more information about internal family systems, you can go to the website of ifs-institute.com and any questions regarding the pod, please contact me on moversandshakerspod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.